0: Last week I made the case from verses 9 to 14 of Romans chapter 8 that only those who are personally indwelt by the Spirit and powerfully led by the Spirit to presently walk by the Spirit will be raised by the Spirit to everlasting life on the last day. That's the main point of verses 9 to 14. I showed you in the first half of that sermon, focusing in on verses 9 to 11, that the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is the hallmark of authentic New Testament Christianity. To be a Christian in the New Covenant is to have the Holy Spirit mysteriously dwelling within your soul. To be a Christian is to be a living temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. Whom you have from God. Or as Paul states it in Romans 8.9 You however are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But this indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is not a a static presence. It is a dynamic presence, an active presence, a transformative presence. All those who are personally indwelt by the Spirit are likewise powerfully led by the Spirit to presently walk by the Spirit. Verse 14 of Romans 8, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. But led where? Led to do what? How is the Holy Spirit operative in the hearts and lives of those whom he indwells? We found two answers in the text. The first from up in verse 4. Told us that the Spirit of God leads the sons of God to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Namely, the law of love. Romans thirteen eight. Romans 8, 4 says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So those who walk according to the spirit walk in love. And in so doing, they are fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. That's the first thing that the spirit of God leads the sons of God to do. He leads them to walk in love, righteousness, holiness. But secondly, the Spirit of God leads the sons of God to put to death the sin that remains in their lives. Verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what emerges from this picture in the first half of Romans chapter 8 is a dynamic life in the Spirit that characterizes New Testament Christianity. Now Paul refers to this life in the Spirit in different ways. For instance, in verses 4 and 5 he calls it living according to the Spirit. In verse 13, he refers to putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. In verse 14, he speaks of being led by the Spirit. In Galatians 5, he calls it walking by the Spirit. Galatians 5, 16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. New Testament authentic Christianity is a radically different way of living life. It is a life of conscious reliance upon the Spirit's power in order to live in conscious obedience to the Spirit's command. But what does that mean and how do we do it? This morning, we will consider those two questions. We're going to camp out in those three little words in verse 13, but they're also found in verse 4 and verse 14, Galatians 5, 16, and a multitude of other places. Those three little words, by the Spirit. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? What does it mean to kill sin by the Spirit? What does it mean to live according to or by the Spirit? All three of those phrases are speaking of the very same reality. Reality. And as we shall see, this is not some next level super Christianity as if you have normal Christians and then you have super Christians who walk by the spirit. That's not Paul's conception of the church. This is the normal Christian life. Simply put, Christians are those who walk by the spirit, who put to death sin by the spirit and who live according to the spirit. Those who don't simply are not Christians. They do not belong to Christ, verse 9. They are not sons of God, verse 14. And they will not be raised on the last day, verse 11. Or as verse 13 says, they will die. Living eternally in joy and in fellowship with Christ depends upon living presently by the Spirit's power. If you want to live forever in God's presence, in everlasting, ever-increasing joy, you must live presently by the Spirit's power. So what does that mean? Well, I'll begin with a definition, then I'm going to try to fill out that definition with some explanatory statements. When Paul says in Romans 8.4 that those who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit will fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, or when he says in verse 13 that those who by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body will live, or in Galatians 5.16 that those who walk by the Spirit will not gratify the desires of the flesh, what does he mean? My simple definition of what it means to live according to the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to put to death sin by the Spirit, is that it refers to a life lived in conscious reliance upon the Spirit's power to live in conscious obedience to the Spirit's command? That's what it means to live by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to kill sin by the Spirit. It means to live in conscious reliance upon the Spirit's power in order to live in conscious obedience. To the Spirit's command. But before I dra- break that definition apart and begin to explain some of its essential components, I just want you to notice the two key words: reliance and obedience. And okay, just to make sure we're on the, the right track with Paul's thought here, I want to kind of highlight these two words and show how they fit together. Another word for reliance is trust or faith. So those two words, obedience and faith, ought to ring a bell in those of us who have been studying Romans for the last year from Romans 1 on. Because in the introduction to his letter, if you'll remember, about a year ago, Paul wrote that the purpose of his apostleship, Romans 1.5, was to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Christ's name among all the nations. Jesus appointed Paul, he says, an apostle in order that he might bring the nations not merely to faith, but to a radically new way of life rooted in faith, namely the obedience of faith. And what I'm saying is that's exactly synonymous with walking by the Spirit. The goal of Paul's apostleship is to gather a people from among the nations... Who will obey Christ by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. Then, all the way in chapter 16, in the concluding doxology of Romans, Paul repeats the same purpose. Paul says, again, the goal of the gospel and the goal of the preaching of Jesus Christ. God's purpose in revealing the mystery of the gospel that was kept secret for long ages, but is now being disclosed through the prophetic writings, like Paul's letter to the Romans, for instance. The command of the eternal God to all of the nations is the obedience of faith. In other words... Lives lived in conscious reliance upon the Spirit's power to live in conscious obedience to the Spirit's command. What we're talking about today is the goal of the gospel. So we're not talking about something peripheral, something additional to the gospel. We are talking about the central aim and purpose of the gospel. God redeemed you in Christ, justified you by faith, sent his spirit to dwell in you in order that you would consciously rely upon the spirit's power to consciously obey the spirit's command. In other words, that you would walk by the spirit. God does not want just bare obedience as if that were even possible. He wants the obedience of faith. He wants you to obey him in the power which he supplies so that he receives all of the glory. The Christian life is not one in which we work for God. It is one in which we trust God to work for, in, and through us. And here is how I think that happens. There are four elements of this definition I want to expound upon. The first is that walking by the Spirit or living according to the Spirit is something intentional. Okay, I tried to capture that with the word Conscious. Is not something that unconsciously or unintentionally happens. The obedience of faith does not happen by accident. Walking by the Spirit is not a passive endeavor. The first half of Romans 8 is all about the Spirit's work and power in the lives of those whom He indwells. And yet, this passage is absolutely full of active verbs. Romans 8, 4, the righteous requirement of the law will be fulfilled in those who walk according to the Spirit. Verse 5, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Verse 13, those who live are those who by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. Verse 15, those who have received the Spirit of adoption cry. The Christian life is a life of activity, not Passivity. Now, it is true that the sons of God are those who are led by the Spirit. That is a passive verb. But the context makes it clear that they are led by the Spirit into lives of action. Holiness does not just happen. It must be pursued. It must be fought for. It must be stalked like a lion stalks its prey. The call to walk by the Spirit is a call to Spirit-empowered activity in the pursuit of holiness. So if I turn that around and give it from the negative perspective, if you do not walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. If you do not set your mind on the things of the Spirit, you will not live according to the Spirit. If you do not make war upon your flesh and its inordinate desires, your flesh will rule over you and it will drag you down to destruction. The call to live according to the Spirit is not a call to passivity. It is a call to action. It is a call to obedience. Life in the Spirit, hear me, is not let go and let God. That teaching finds its roots in the 19th century Keswick higher life movement in England. But it's, it, it has amazing staying power. That's how I was taught to walk by the Spirit. You want to know how you walk by the Spirit? Do nothing. Let go and let God. And you want to know what happened? I was ruled by the flesh. It is an unbiblical approach to the Christian life because the call of Christ is a call to conscious, strenuous obedience, but an obedience enabled and empowered by the Spirit. And in order to access that power of the Spirit, he must be consciously relied upon, trusted in to supply that power. The Spirit of God works through faith, never apart from faith. Galatians 3.5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? That's why Paul calls it the obedience of faith. Faith. It is conscious obedience performed in conscious reliance upon the Spirit's power. And if one of those elements is missing, either the reliance or the obedience, the faith or the obedience, holiness is not going to happen. If you do not consciously pursue righteousness and consciously make war upon indwelling sin, you will not attain to that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. And if you do not consciously rely upon the Spirit's power, you will fail to attain righteousness, the righteous requirement of the law. Either your good intentions will run out in the face of temptation, or you will fall short and you will return to your sin like a dog returns to its vomit. Or, what would be worse... Is that you will render to God some kind of external, hypocritical, pharisaical obedience. That does not issue from the heart. Which is the only kind of obedience God's interested in. So if you would be holy, you must walk by the Spirit. You must consciously rely upon the Spirit's power to consciously obey the Spirit's command. It's an intentional thing. Secondly, it is a mystical thing. That is, it is is something that that resides outside the realm of rational explanation, yet is nevertheless true. Let me give you three verses which demonstrate the the mystical interplay between my activity and the Spirit's activity. The first comes from Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? That's your command. Work. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work, because God is working. Now notice carefully what Paul says. He wants the Philippian believers to work out their salvation. That is to pursue the aim or the goal of their salvation. To strive to be, he says just two verses later, blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine like lights in the world. That's what he wants them to aim for. That's what he wants them to strive for. Shine. Shine. Work so that you may shine. Why? Because that's what God is working for in you. God is working in them... Causing them to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is causing you to want what he wants, and he's supplying you with the energy to do what he's calling you to do. He is willing and working in your willing and working. So go work, Paul says. If you don't, you won't shine. If you don't work out your salvation with fear and trembling, you won't be saved. But if you do, you will. Because it is only by God's good pleasure impelling you to will and to work. You work because God works. You will because God wills. Therefore, salvation remains entirely of grace, entirely through faith, entirely because of Christ, and entirely for his glory. Second passage comes from 1 Corinthians 15.10, where Paul is explaining that even though he was the least qualified to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church of God, yet he says here rather boldly, God was pleased to make him the most fruitful apostle of all. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked. I worked. I worked harder than any of them. Peter, I outworked him. James, I outworked him. Matthew, I outworked him. But it wasn't me. It was the grace of God in me. Willing and working. Paul worked harder than the rest of them. Therefore, he accomplished more than the rest of them. But underneath and behind his work and his willing was God's working and willing in him by grace causing his working and willing third passage comes from 1 Peter 4.11, where Peter gives the reason why God works obedience in us and through us by the exercise of his power. We'll actually start in verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. By the Spirit, right? Well, how, Why? In order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. If I speak in my own strength, God is not glorified. But if I speak as one who is communicating the oracles of God by the power which he supplies... He receives all of the glory and that's what he wants. For to him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to you. So don't work by your own power. So if we're going to serve, serve in God's strength, not your own. If we're going to kill sin, kill sin in His strength, not our own. By the Spirit's power, not our own power. Why? So that God receives all of the glory through Jesus Christ. God does not want you to work for Him. He does not need you to work for Him rather god wants to work in and through you to accomplish his purpose that he may receive all of the glory and the praise so in some mystical way that lies beyond our comprehension we act and god acts we work and god works we serve and god serves we act Because God acts, we work because God works, we serve because God serves. On the other hand, if we do not act or work or serve, nothing will happen and it will be devastating evidence that God is not willing and working in us by the Spirit. In this way, the effect of our working, the fruit of it, is supernatural. The Christian life is not a just do your best kind of life. Jesus simply is not interested in our best efforts because our best efforts stink. He's not interested in what can be accomplished in our own natural strength. That's why in John 15, he tells his disciples, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do, give me the word, nothing. Jesus is not interested in your natural strength. I regard abide in me to be virtually synonymous with walk by the Spirit. I think he's talking about the same reality. I think we abide in Christ by the Spirit. I think Christ abides in us by the Spirit. And Jesus is clear that unless we abide in him, there will be nothing produced in our lives that he considers good. And I think this is because the only fruit that matters is that which is produced, Romans 6.17, from the heart. The only obedience that matters to Jesus is that which flows out of love. Love for God and love for neighbor. Works that are born of such words and such motivations as duty or obligation, they don't impress Jesus. External obedience, absent internal affection, is hypocrisy. This is what Paul meant when he said in Galatians 5, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. You want to know what counts for something? Faith working through love. Works matter, but not any kind of works. Works born of faith, motivated by love. Can you produce those kind of works apart from the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit consciously relied upon? No, you cannot. You cannot produce love where there is none. You cannot will yourself to love and serve a person whom you do not by nature love and desire to serve. So how are you going to do that? Well, you could fake it, I suppose, but I wouldn't recommend it. You trust in the Spirit's power to produce love in you. That is faith working through love, and it's the only thing that counts before God. Only walking by the Spirit, living according to the Spirit, can we produce supernatural fruit. Otherwise, Jesus says, we can do nothing. Finally, I want to point out that walking by the Spirit is essential to New Testament Christianity. Simply put, unless you live according to the Spirit, you are not a Christian. Now, I'm not saying that you do this perfectly. Of course you don't. I hope you do it better than you used to. I hope one day you'll do it better than you do now. You will not achieve perfection in this walk as long as you live in this body of flesh. But what I am saying is that if you are a Christian, then you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, and that Spirit is not inactive or ineffective. He is leading you verse 14. He is transforming your desires. He is changing your affections. He is willing and working in you. And if he is not, verse 9, you don't have the Spirit of Christ. And if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. And if you don't belong to Christ, you'll not be raised by Christ. Walking by the Spirit, living according to the Spirit, it's not some sort of higher Christian life. It's the normal christian life a christian is someone who walks by the spirit that is who consciously relies upon the spirit's power to consciously obey the spirit's command but as with every facet of the christian life this too is something that we must grow in all christians walk by the spirit all christians live according to the spirit all Christians can do so with greater clarity, greater intentionality, and greater effectiveness. Which is why we're here this morning. This only makes sense because walking by the Spirit depends upon faith, and faith comes by the hearing of the Word. So the more that we read and study and hear and learn the Word of God, the more. this, by the way, if you've been here since I've gotten here six years ago, Okay, This is like the third time I've preached on this topic. You've needed all three. You'll need three more. The more you hear, the more you believe, the more you grow in that conscious reliance upon the Spirit's power. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Week in, week out. Book in, book out. So the more we read, study, hear, learn the word of God, the more our faith grows and deepens. And the more our faith grows and deepens, the more we rely upon the Spirit's power. And the more we rely upon the Spirit's power, the more effectively we walk by the Spirit. So my aim this morning was to clearly define what it means to walk by the Spirit and then to provide you with a practical paradigm, not the only paradigm, but one paradigm by which you may consciously do that. Over five years ago, I preached through Galatians. And when I got to Galatians 5, as I was was studying and seeing what other people had written about Galatians 5.16 and what it means to walk by the Spirit, I ran across a sermon from John Piper in which he gave an acronym which he uses in his own personal life to consciously rely upon the Spirit's power, to consciously obey the Spirit's command, to walk by the Spirit with intentionality and effectiveness. The acronym he uses is APTAT, which doesn't spell something. It would be cool if it did, but it doesn't. If you can come up with something better that spells something, let me know and we'll use that. All I'm telling you is that in the last five years, I have found this paradigm to be immensely helpful in my own life. Now, you certainly don't have to use this one. But I contend that you need something to help you consciously, consciously rely upon the Spirit's power to consciously obey the Spirit's command. Because if you're not intentionally living by the Spirit, you're going to wind up living according to the flesh. So I'm going to explain this paradigm, and then I'll close by running a couple of imaginary scenarios, maybe not so imaginary scenarios, through this paradigm to show you how it works. I suggest that you you work through this paradigm, this acronym to start your day, in your morning devotion and prayer time, and then whenever during the day you are confronted with a situation that requires love and obedience or self-control, any of those situations when you find yourself crying out with the Apostle Paul, I have the desire to do what is right, but the ability to carry it out is just not in me. That's what Paul says in Romans 7, 18. That characterizes the Christian life lived out in the natural flesh. When you are called upon to love someone who offers nothing in return but a headache and the depletion of your emotional reservoir. When your children have graded on your last nerve and you don't want to lose your temper, but you can feel your blood pressure rising and your eyebrow beginning to twitch when you've got to turn away from an immoral relationship at the office or a a sensual image on the TV or the computer screen, but everything inside your flesh is crying out for indulgence. Whenever love is required or sin needs to be killed, run that scenario through this paradigm to help you walk by the Spirit. That is, to consciously rely upon the Spirit's power, to consciously obey the Spirit's command. First, you must acknowledge your weakness. Acknowledge that what Jesus says about you is true. You can't do anything apart from him. John 15, 5. Acknowledge what Paul says was true of him is also true of you. Romans 7, 18. The power to do good does not reside within you. You cannot muster up through sheer effort and willpower the love that you need in order to love the unlovely. You do not possess the self control required to resist temptation. You do not have the innate wisdom necessary to make wise decisions. You do not possess the power to produce supernatural fruit. So just begin by putting to death the pride and the self-sufficiency which says, I can do this on my own. Thank you very much. And acknowledge your helplessness and your need. That's the A, the first one. P, pray for the power of the Spirit. In your weakness, you must pray that the Spirit would bear fruit in you. If it's love you need, pray that God would cause you to increase and abound in love in accordance with 1 Thessalonians 3.12. If it's joy you need, pray that the God of hope would fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you would abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, Romans 15.13. Or pray that God would equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in you that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, Hebrews 13.21. In other words, ask God to do for you and in you what you cannot do in and for yourself. Ask him to overpower the sinful desire of your flesh with a superior and stronger desire of the spirit for righteousness. Ask him to work and will within you for his good pleasure. Then having prayed for the spirit's power, you must then trust in the Spirit's provision. Because the Spirit works by faith. And faith must have an object. It must have something to cling to. Something to, to anchor into. And the only solid anchor. The only solid rock on which you can rest your faith. Is the promises of the Word of God. So trust the promise of God who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you by the hearing of faith, Galatians 3, 5. Find a promise specific to your need, and if you can't think of one and you can't find one, find one of those general ones. Maybe it's love you need. Romans 5, 5 says the Holy Spirit has shed the love of God abroad in your heart. Just like an overflowing fountain. Maybe it's wisdom you need. James 1.5 promises that wisdom will be given to those who ask in faith. Maybe it's self-discipline you need. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but one of love and power and self-control. God has promised to sanctify you and has by his divine power granted to you everything. Pertaining to life and godliness. Everything. Including the power to resist that temptation. Including the power to love the unlovely. 2 Peter 1.3. Or here's my go-to verse. When I can't think of one that specifically fits a specific promise. It's Jesus in Luke 11.13 saying, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more. Will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's what I need. I need the Holy Spirit provided by my heavenly father. He'll give it. The next step, then, is absolutely crucial. You do not wait to feel love or wisdom or power welling up inside of you. That's not the way this works. God does not ordinarily fill you with power, then you go to work. Rather, God fills you with his power as you go to work. If it were the other way around, okay, just imagine that, that, that it was that you wait to feel God's infusion of spiritual power in you and then... You go do what the Spirit commands you to do. If you waited until you suddenly felt divine power coursing through your spiritual veins before you stepped out in obedience, your obedience would not be of faith. It would be of feeling. And that's not the way God works. He desires the obedience of faith, so he supplies the power of the Spirit through faith. And you're not really believing until you're obeying. So after you've prayed for power and rooted your faith in a promise from the word of God, you must act in obedience regardless of how you feel. Act the miracle. Piper describes it trusting that God has heard and answered your prayer for power and has provided you with the strength that you need. And it's in this way, when you come to God in utter helplessness and dependence, praying for and trusting in his strength that your obedience then is not a work of the flesh, but is rather a fruit of the spirit and God himself receives all of the glory, which leads us to our last step, thank him. Thank God for granting you the grace, the will, and the power to do by His Spirit what you could not have done by the flesh. In other words, on the other side of some great spiritual triumph, don't look back in satisfaction and say, Huh, did a pretty good job. Look what I've accomplished. Phrase it like Paul did. By the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me has not proven vain. Thank God and to him be all the glory. That's how you walk by the Spirit. Now let me close by giving you two examples of how this looks like in real time. Suppose it's 8:15 p.m. It's been a long day. You've just got the kids to bed. You're like 8:15, Tim, you've got to be kidding me. Whatever time it is, kids are in bed. And you finally sit down on your couch to relax, and it's then that your friend calls. You know the one. The one who's always in a state of crisis, always calling you only when they need something. For a split second, you contemplate just ignoring the call, but then a still small voice whispers inside your soul, but what does love require? So you, the answer, you answer the phone, and this time, predictably, it's her marriage. They've had a bad fight. She's in tears. There's no part of you that wants to spend the next hour and a half on the phone, unpacking her emotions and sorting them out. You're tired. You're weary. You have emotions too, and it's just not in you. What do you do? You tell her, let me call you back in a couple of minutes, I need to pray. Then you hang up and you get down on your knees. You say, God, I'm tired. I don't want to talk to her tonight. But I know that you want me to show her love and compassion. I just don't have it in me. I don't have the emotional energy. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the words. I need you. To fill me with love and compassion for my friend who is hurting. Help me to overcome the weariness and the selfishness. Help me to love her as you love her. For love is the fulfillment of the law. I trust you to provide for me the love and the wisdom that I need. Because you've promised to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. There's Luke eleven thirteen, And then you get up. You call your friend and you do what love demands. You listen, you counsel, you empathize, you pray, and as you do, you find reservoirs of love you didn't know you had. You find reservoirs of wisdom you didn't know you possess. You do so in the strength that God supplies through faith. And when you're finally done and you hang up and she's she's back on solid ground, you pause and you give thanks to God for giving you the love and the wisdom you needed, for using you to minister in his name and for the joy and the sweet rest that he gives to those who obey his word. Or let's take a different scenario one that deals with temptation and relates directly to our text, Romans 8.13. Let's say that you work in an office with an attractive co-worker of the opposite sex. And what started as conversations at the lunch table has evolved into regular flirtation, and it's clear that she's attracted to you as well. There's definitely some chemistry there. The sparks are beginning to fly, but... You're married. You know, deep inside, everything about this relationship is wrong. You know you've got to put a stop to this before it goes too far. And you didn't ask for this. You weren't out looking for it, but here it is. You know that to continue this relationship, to allow it to develop, to do nothing about it, would be sin and will end in destruction. But if you're honest, you also know you want it. So what do you do? You put to death the deeds of the body by the power of the Spirit. You slay sin by the Spirit's power. Before you go to work every morning, before lunch, or whenever it is that you know you'll run into, or you pray, God, I want to be holy, I want to be faithful, I want to be pure in thought and in deed but I confess to you what you already know. I feel an attraction to this woman that I cannot diffuse on my own. I desperately need your help. I need the power of your spirit. I ask you to take away these feelings remove this desire, put it to death in me, overwhelm me with love and desire and affection for my wife and, and for my family and for you, O oh Lord. You have called me to flee from sexual immorality, to control my body in holiness and honor and not to be ruled by passions and lust. That's what you say in First Thessalonians 4.3. And you have promised your divine power has granted me everything pertaining to life and godliness. Second Peter 1.3 So I trust you to guard me, to protect me, and to purify me. Then, having acknowledged your weakness, prayed for power, and trusting in the promises, you act. This is very important. You do not presume upon the Spirit by continuing to do the same things you were doing before. You obey Christ by cutting off your hand, cutting off your foot, gouging out your eye. Before you fall into sin. In other words. You change where you take your breaks, You change where you eat your lunch. So as to avoid being around her. You get some accountability from another believer in the office. Or from some of the guys in your small group at church. Who will check in on you during the day. And make sure that you are walking in purity. And if nothing else works. You ask for a transfer. And if they won't give it to you. You find another job. Whatever it takes to kill that sin, but you do so by the power of the Spirit through faith. And you will find the Spirit faithful to purify your mind, cleanse your heart, and to preserve you from falling. And as He does, you thank God and you give Him the glory through Jesus Christ. For if you live according to the flesh you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, Romans 8.13. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, Galatians 5.16. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. but because we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that you're working in us to will and to work for your good pleasure. Help us this week to walk by the Spirit so that we may fulfill the righteous requirement of the law and not gratify the desires of the flesh. And now... May the love of the Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you both now and forevermore. And all of God's people said,